Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, thanks, Travis. If you guys have a Bible, I hope you do. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at Galatians 3:15 through the end of the chapter as we continue on our, our sermon series through uh, Paul's treaty on freedom and, and the gospel here. Greg, I often see your, your wife, Jonna, walking through the neighborhood, but I never see you walking, man. What's going on here? You're running in another neighborhood, all right. Well, I've, I've got, uh, I think I've got Jonna and the dog pegged, but uh, man, appreciate you guys and being here and helping us out with our, um, our ministries here for Sunday mornings. It means a lot to us. Uh, you guys all know that the swimming pools are open this weekend, which means all the kids are gonna probably, or they might already be sleeping this morning, which is just, just fine with me. It's Memorial Day. This is like the official beginning of the summer. And you know, while we pause to remember our, uh, our families that they say um, all, all military families sacrifice some, some sacrifice all for the freedom of our country. And, and so we are extremely grateful. If you, anybody in your family have served, uh, if you've lost loved ones, because of their service for our country, we're, we are in debt. Um, thank you for, for the um, sacrifice that you've given for our freedoms here in the States. It's difficult to find a more selfless modern day message about forgiveness, reconciliation, and a new family of God than that of the example of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, of course, was the great uh, liberator of South Africa who helped to end the apartheid government that existed there. For 27 years, he was imprisoned simply because he protested the apartheid government. And he made a decision the very day that he walked out of those prison gates for the rest of his life, he was going to be free. And he said it eloquently himself. As I walked out of the door of the gates that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Nelson Mandela said this, he said, you will achieve more in the world through acts of mercy than you could ever achieve through acts of retribution. He also said that resentment is like drinking poison yourself and then hoping that it will kill your enemies. But forgiveness liberates the soul. He said forgiveness removes fear. Most people don't know this, but Nelson Mandela was a Christian. Of course, the media uh, won't dig deep into that narrative whatsoever. Um, But when he achieved reconciliation with de Klerk and the apartheid government, the African National Congress came together to end the apartheid. It was one of the greatest acts of reconciliation that you can ever imagine from Christian brothers in Christ. This morning, we're going to see a a very short prepositional phrase in the book of Galatians. It it goes something like this, in Christ. And though this phrase is short, it is long in meaning and its depth of theology. 
The Apostle Paul introduces us to us to one of the richest theological topics of salvation that we, when we trust Christ, the second that we place our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are in Christ. And at the outset, this is crucial to our identity in Christ. Being in Christ means that we are no longer in the first Adam who led to death and destruction. We are in the second Adam who led to life and peace and eternal life. Being in Christ means that we are no longer separated from a perfect God, but now we have a relational, we are united with God through his son. Being in Christ is equivalent to being a Christian. It's a synonym. The phrase in Christ is, is a means to our identity. We are in Christ because we are called by Christ. We have been baptized by Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We have grace and reconciliation through Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. In Christ means that we have all the blessings that come from being in the family of God because we are in Christ. We have wisdom and knowledge from God. We have the status of sons and daughters. We are heirs to the inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. In Christ, we have righteousness. In Christ, we have the fullness of joy, and in Christ, we have life and life eternal. Being in Christ is one of the most foundational and the richest themes that the Apostle Paul will ever discuss in terms of a, a theology of salvation, and he says it's a mystery. We will never fully know the depth in the meaning of what it really means to be in Christ. But the point that the Apostle Paul seems to emphasize more than any other point in Galatians 3 about the truth that we are in Christ is that all of us, no matter what our ethnicity, no matter our gender, no matter our social class, all of us are in a new family with God. Because we have believed and placed our faith in Christ, the gospel ushers us into a brand new family, and that's what I want to talk about this morning in Galatians chapter 3. Number one this morning and number one in your outline. Our Christian family is cemented in God's promises. Because we are in Christ, we are cemented in God's promises. Look down at Galatians 3, verse 15. I'll read through verse 18. To give a human example, the Apostle Paul writes, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by means of a promise. Y'all remember the uh, first contract you signed on the dotted line and dated for ever in life? First contract I ever, I ever signed was I was a, a senior in high school. I was about to go off to college to Mississippi State, and there was this brand new device that hit the market, and it was all the buzz. It was called a cell phone. And so as a senior in high school, I probably rode my bike to the AT&T store. 
I bought myself a cell phone with a one-year contract on it. And I'll never forget, I was so excited leaving that place, my, my cell phone that came in the box, and, and I, this is the first cell phone that I ever owned. I never forget how excited I was to own my first cell phone. I'll also never forget how not excited I was to sign that contract for the cell phone because there was a lot of fine print at the end of it. And in order to keep the agreement with the cell phone, I had to meet and be aware of all the fine print. In verse 15, Paul refers to worldly contracts. He refers to a lot of the the fine print that we experience in contracts that we deal with on a daily basis. In the first century, people made contracts, they made agreements, and they had to keep the terms of the contract. Once the contract was agreed upon, you couldn't go back on it. There was no changing it. The ESV says you can't annul it or add to the contract. Some translations will say once a contract is put in place, you can't set it aside. And it's irrevocable. And Paul is using here is a, a very specific argument. He is arguing from lesser to greater. And he says to the Galatians, you guys know about contracts. You make them every day in your life and in your society. You know about terms. You know about agreements. And what happens to people who make them? Listen, God did the exact same thing. He made a contract. He made a promise. Only his promise is much greater than your lesser worldly contracts. His word is much more binding. And the implication is this. If you, as human beings living in your culture and your society, if you know how to keep a contract between men, Let me tell you about the contract that God keeps for you because you are in Christ. God's promise is greater. And I want to give you three reasons why. First reason why God's promise is greater and our worldly contracts are lesser. Most earthly contracts pertain to a specific individual and they may be binding to the family, but God's promise pertains to a family and is binding to a specific individual. The promises to Abraham, you find them in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. And each time a promise is given to Abraham, you get a little bit more about what exactly God is promising to this patriarch of the faith. In Genesis 12, God told Abram, go into this, leave your country, leave your family, and go into the world, to the land which I will show you, you will possess it. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in the context, Abraham became Abram, became a blessing wherever he went. He blessed Abimelech. He blessed all the nations that he came across. They were blessed, and that, that promise was fulfilled in many ways through Abraham, but it was ultimately fulfilled, and it ultimately pointed to one of his descendants, and it ultimately pointed to Christ. Genesis 15, God promised to Abram he would have an offspring, not through his maidservant, but this one would be born through Sarah. And that promise to Abram was fulfilled. Isaac was born to Abram and Sarah. But it specifically points directly and completely to Christ, to an heir which would come. Genesis 17, God promised Abram that he would be a a father of many nations. He would be a king of kings, king of nations. And that promise is pointed to and directly fulfilled in Christ. And then you get to Genesis 22 when Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice back to God when God tested him. And God gives him this promise. He says, 
A descendant of yours will possess the gates of your enemy. And we know for a fact that that one absolutely points is, is directly fulfilled in the person in the work of Christ, who against the, uh, the gates of Hades, nobody will stand against Christ. God's promise is completely centered, it is completely filled in Christ. His promise is greater because it ultimately points to Christ. Number two, God's promise is greater because earthly contracts are temporary, but God's promise is eternal. Earthly contracts are temporary. God's promise is eternal. About 500 years after Abraham and the promise to Abraham came Moses, the great lawgiver to Israel. And just, became, just because the law came in later, it didn't invalidate the promise from earlier. Just because the law came in doesn't mean that the promise went out. God's promise to Abraham was still binding. It was greater. And listen, we need to stop and, and define a couple of terms in verses 15 through 18, because you're going to see this all the way through this passage in Galatians chapter 3. The first key word that I want to take some time and just define for you in the Greek is this word promise. Promise in the New Testament means this, a declaration that includes an obligation to carry, out, carry it out. A promise from God is a declaration that includes an obligation upon him to carry it out. You're going to see this word for promise eight times in all these verses through the end of chapter 3. And in Genesis 15, it's, it's really interesting what happens because Paul certainly has Genesis 15 in the, in the backdrop of his mind when he writes Galatians chapter 3. I have no doubt about it. Remember what happened in, in Genesis chapter 15? God appears to Abram in a dream, and they're at the sacrificial table. And Abram and God are going to make this sacrifice. Abram's going to make the sacrifice to God. And so he takes all these carcasses of these animals, and he cuts them in half. And he creates this aisle between each half of the carcasses. And typically in the ancient Near East, when you made this kind of agreement, when you made this kind of covenant, it was very symbolic. What it meant was this. If you break this agreement, if you break the covenant that I am making with you today, might the same thing happen to you that has just happened to these animal carcasses that were cut in half. And so a deep sleep comes upon Abram. And what's really interesting is, is it's not... Abram that walks through the carcasses in Genesis 15. He never does. There's a, a flax and a smoking pot that goes right between the carcasses. This is God's way of saying that my promise to you doesn't depend on you. My promise to you depends completely on me and my word to fulfill it. Because what God has promised, he will fulfill. He cannot lie in his perfect character. The second word I want you to pay attention to is covenant. A good Erasmian pronunciation of, of this word is diatheke in the Greek. And here's what it means. It is a legal or commercial discourse involving a promissory obligation. A covenant, when Paul uses this word in the New Testament, is a legal or commor commercial discourse involving a promissory obligation. And when you see this word in the New Testament, it functions as a bridge back to the Old Testament. Anytime you see Paul use this word covenant, it would immediately connect you with the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was this, this box overlaid with gold with cher cherubim over it 
uh, protecting the holiness, the righteousness, and the justice of God. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the special presence of God to his people. And whenever that Ark went, God's people would follow. God was always with his people in a very special way through his personal presence in the Ark of the Covenant. Why don't you listen to what J.I. Packer says about the promises of God. He says, the promises of God are the proper God-given basis for all of life and all of faith. The promises of God are the proper God-given basis for all of life and all of our faith. And so let me just stop and ask this question to you. What do you have in your life that causes you anxiety? What are you worried about today? If you could list your top fear that you are struggling with today, right now. In fact, I would encourage you to to write whatever this thing is that you are worried about or fearful about in the margins of your Bible and date it. Right next to Galatians chapter three, verse 18. And come back to it the next time you read your Bible. What do you have that you are so worried about that the promises of God haven't touched yet? J.I. Packer also said this, I think this is good. A constant attention to the promises and a firm belief in them would prevent fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety that show that we are not trusting some promise in God's word. God doesn't want us to walk in fear. He wants us to cast out fear in love and hang on tightly to the promises of God. Finally and thirdly, God's promise is greater than our worldly contracts because it is not conditional, it is unconditional. God's promise to Abraham is not conditional, it is unconditional. The inheritance for God's people was based on this promise to Abraham, not on the law to Moses. And when God promises his inheritance, unlike my cell phone contract, there is no fine print. He will fulfill the obligation, because this is based completely on him. Because of God's word to Abram and to Abraham, Christians are cemented in the promises of God. Because of his pledge and his obligation to keep his promise to Abraham, Christians are in a family that is cemented to the promises of God. Number two, number two in your outline. Our family is connected to the promises of God, cemented, but our family is also connected by faith. Our family in Christ is connected by faith in Christ. Now Paul is saying, that God's promises on the one hand are completely distinct from God's laws on the other hand. The promises of God and the laws of God, we would say, are mutually exclusive. You cannot join them, you can't combine them, they are not united in any way. He is drawing a, a strong distinction between promises and law in this context. And this is so important for the Galatians believers to understand, remember? They wanted to go back to the law. They had the promises from Abram and from Abraham, from God to Abraham, but they wanted to go back to the law, to the covenant that God made with Moses. It was uh, interesting last Wednesday. Henry, where are you? Henry, are you in here? Henry and Jonathan, Johnny, these guys had their final um, close to their spring soccer season. And what the parents decided to do, they came up with this brilliant plan that the way that we're gonna close out the soccer season is it's gonna be all the parents versus the kids in soccer. 
And do you guys know there's a, who is the guy that sings the country song, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was? And the call went out that there was going to be this game, and I'm, and I'm looking at Christian Fantoni, and we're two, two dads that are going to play in this game. And I'm saying to Christian, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. And if you give me an opportunity to humiliate my son in soccer, I'm going to absolutely take it. And so here's, here's, here's what happens. I can only do this for like two more years, I'm pretty sure. It's, it's getting pretty close to not being able to do this again. Here's what happens. The midfielder is Coach Weston, and Coach Weston played college soccer. He's a really great soccer player, and I'm, I'm up at right striker playing forward. And he looks at me, and I look at him, and in the blink of an eye, we know exactly what to do. He gets the ball, he traps it, and he gives me this great pass, just delivers me in a dime, you would call it. And all I had to do was sprint past a sixth grader. <laughs> and shoot, why are you guys laughing? <laughs> and shoot it in the net, and sure enough, I think I have these inner body experiences and I really think that I can pull these things off, but really I am like out of control and it does not look pretty, right? And so I give it the old college try and I give it everything I got. I go past this kid and I wind up and I just kind of nick the ball as it was a miss hit, it went out of bounds instead. And in the process, I lost control of my body and ran over the sixth grade kid. <laughs> There are some things in life at the age of 40 that I can no longer do. And Paul says this, there are a lot of things that the law cannot do for a believer. Here's a few of them. Going back in Galatians chapter three, the law cannot give the spirit of God. The law is incapable of giving the gift of the Spirit to a believer. The law cannot secure justification. The law has no ability to justify anybody and declare that they are righteous. The law cannot alter our need for faith. The law cannot invalidate the promise of God that was given beforehand. And this is a really hard pill for the Israelites to swallow. Remember, Israel had the law from God. They were God's special, privileged people, and the law was a gift to them. David called, called the law of God a gracious gift to him and to his people Israel. Joshua meditated on the law day and night. Paul said that the law was holy, it was righteous, and it was good. And if the law can't do all of these things that are written up here, why did God give the law in the first place? What was the purpose for doing it? Look down at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels and by an interme intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul asked, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be through the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin that the promise of faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came 
in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. There are many reasons that Paul gave the law to Israel. Paul gave the law to Israel to establish a standard. Paul, Paul gave the law to Israel to, to reveal their sin to them. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. The law distinguished Israel from every other nation on the face of the earth. Remember, they were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and the priests would mediate the law to the people from God. The law defines an ethical standard of living. The law convicts the soul, Psalm 19, verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, it says, in converting, converting the soul. There are, there are so many reasons, there are so many purposes well, God gave, why God gave the law to Israel. But there is one thing that Paul hammers out here in, in Galatians 3 clearer than anything else, and I want to quote extensively from John Stott on this. This is going to be small print, but I'll read it for you. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Because he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, it provoked sin, and it condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid of man's responsibility and dis disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. John Stott continues, we must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in the biblical story. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until he has first revealed to him himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. It is only against the dark background of sin and judgment. Stott says that the gospel finally shines forth. More than anything else, Paul says the law was a guardian. The law was a schoolmaster. The law was a tutor. It was designed to bring people to the knowledge of Christ to realize they couldn't fulfill its righteous demands. And so look to a savior, look to one who did on your behalf. The law was given to Israel to teach them, and in the ancient world, it's, it's really interesting, this, this word for guardian or teacher was given to, to young men and women before they became to an age of maturity. It was like a glorified babysitter in many instances. A guardian was given to a, a child to make sure that they could understand things in life, that they could be taught wisdom and discretion and understanding and, and how to live righteously. And once they became of age, once they reached the age of maturity and accountability, that guardian was, was done away with. They were ready to move on past the guardian. And just like that, just like the law was given to Israel, now in Christ they are ready to move past it. Christianity holds a massive distinction, massive, between that which is law and that which is promise. And the biggest distinction is this. The law points to obedience. The promise points to faith. The law asks you to do something. The promise says, here's what's been done for you. Mature Christians live by faith in the promises of God, not in their ability to carry out the law. And listen, as Christians and as a Christian family, we are not connected by rules and laws and outward behaviors. To be a Christian today, at its core, the gospel is not about what you do or about what you don't do. The gospel is about who you believe in. 
which is a total distinction from law, and anchors our faith family in the promises of God and also in the grace of God. And this is why salvation's a gift. We have a family, ultimately, that is cemented in promise, number one. Number two, we have a faith family that is connected by faith, by faith in Christ. Number three, our family is united in Christ. Our family is united in Christ. Now, uh, read the end of this uh, chapter three here, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. Tomorrow, May 31st, marks a special date in Tulsa's history. I don't know if you guys have, have followed this this year. This is the, the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa race riots or the Tulsa race massacre is what it's being called. Uh, some of the worst deemed, one of the worst acts of racism in the United States ever since the Emancipation Proclamation. And we'll never know the, the full story, but uh, some of the facts that we do know is 35 city blocks and historic Greenwood District were uh, burned and, and destroyed. 6,000 African Americans were forced to flee from their homes. Anywhere from 75 to, to 300 were probably killed. Uh, they don't, they don't, they probably never will know a number. Schools, businesses, library, hospital, uh, buildings, over a thousand homes were destroyed right here in Tulsa. And it's a, it's a sad and it's a, it's a very bleak story for our city's history. And it's really interesting that we would be reading this passage in Galatians chapter three on this weekend when we come to this 100-year anniversary. Verse 26 says clearly, every believer, the second you place your faith in Christ, you are born into a new family. Every believer, without distinction, there is no believer who has truly placed their faith in Christ that is not a part of the family that we would call the family of, of faith in Christ. And the first word in Greek is all, in verse 26. All in Christ Jesus are sons of God through faith. It is fronted for emphasis. Every single believer, without exception, is inside God's family. But I want you to notice the shift. Verse 26 is, is present tense. Verse 27 goes to past tense. And verse 28 will go back to present tense. There's a shift in these three verses. Verse 26 in the present tense we are in God's family. Verse 27, Paul shifts to what happened in the past. For as many of you were baptized, past tense into Christ Jesus, have put on Christ, put on in the past tense. Two things happen when the Galatian believers trusted Christ. The same two things happen the second that anybody today trusts in Christ. Number one, the very moment of saving faith, they are baptized into Christ Jesus. And this I would refer to as the Holy Spirit's baptism. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians verses 12, or chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one 
body. I don't think this is referring to a, a physical water baptism. I think it's the Spirit's baptism. Baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. The first thing that happened is we were baptized into Christ. The second thing that happened is that we were clothed with Christ. And when a Roman soldier, or when a Roman uh, family member came of age, when they reached the age of maturity, these, these descriptions, these images that Paul seems to be picking up on in this chapter in Galatians, they were given a, a special garment. They were now sons and daughters of the family, and they were rightfully heirs to the inheritance of the family. Clothing Christ symbolized that they were a responsible adult and they were given the full rights of being a family member. But verse 28 is, is probably the most, most powerful of all the verses. This is the one you'll see quoted and referred to over and over again. Let me read it again. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen to one commentator. These three antitheses represent the most far-reaching distinctions of an ancient society. And they seem to have been deliberately chosen with an eye toward the three, threefold privilege of which a Jewish male would thank God on a daily basis in their prayers. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman on a daily basis. Paul says there is no Jew and Gentile. There is no male and female. There is no slave and free. We're all one in Christ. Another commentator says this, all believers are united in Christ regardless of their ethnic background, their social class, or their gender. Y'all hear of a, a theologian from Princeton University? His name is Miroslav Volf. He wrote a two um, just wonderful works. One is called Exclusion and Embrace and a Gospel of, of Reconciliation. The other one is called Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. Miroslav Volf was a Croatian-born. Um, spent most of his, his teenage years in Serbia. It used to be the uh, Yugoslavia. I don't remember how it went, the, the social... Um, a social group of people from Yugoslavia is what, what Serbia used to be. He was a man that was inflicted with, with differences in race, ethnicity, status, social class his entire life. And God redeemed him from all of it. And so we're going to close a little bit differently than, than I normally do and kind of just three points of application, whatever it might be. And I, I want to talk about Galatians 3.28 and how it refers to our uh, situation in Tulsa, even. The, si the situation that you're hearing on the news media almost on a daily basis these days. And the first thing I wanna say is this. All of us, apart from Christ, are guilty of idolatry. All of us, apart from Christ, are guilty of idolatry. And I want you to listen to this quote from Wolf here. Here's what he says. Two false images of God are particularly irresistible to many of us, mostly, mostly unconsciously. The first I'll designate as God the negotiator. The other false image is God the Santa Claus. Though we have fashioned both to serve our interests, they are each other's opposites. With one, we want to make 
advantageous deals. From the other, we want uh, to get warm smiles and bagfuls of goodies. We run from one false image of God to the other false image of God. Some of their features are reminiscent of the God of Jesus Christ, but we've drawn these images of God mostly from two currents in the culture in which we swim. So the first current is hard and unforgiving economic realities in which we exchange goods to maximize our own benefits. The other current, soft, even infantile. Desires in which we long to be showered with gifts simply because we exist. Between those two opposite extremes, between those two false images of God, we probably find ourselves somewhere, at least in that spectrum. At the deepest level, racism, classism, sexism, at the deepest level, it's not the issue. At the deepest level, idolatry is the issue. At the deepest level, sin is the issue. Because all of us are guilty of creating a false image of God in our hearts. All of us struggle to create a Jesus of our own making, one that makes it easier to live in the society and the world in which we live. Number two, all sin is blind. And even our best intentions to fight injustice can be very sinful. All sin is blind, and even our best intentions to fight injustices in the world that we see every day, even those can be very, very sinful. Here's what Wolf says. The principle cannot be denied. The fiercer the struggle against the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. The principle cannot be denied. The fiercer the struggle against the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. We tend to translate the presumed wrongness of our enemies into an unflattering conviction of our own righteousness. This is coming from a guy that's been a victim of injustice his entire life. He's got a few good biblical things to say that I think our world desperately needs to hear, especially as we remember May 31st, 1921. Number three, racism will always be with us. Perfect reconciliation is only an eschatological reality. Perfect reconciliation is only an eschatological reality. Does that mean that we don't fight the injustices in our world? Does that mean that we don't fight racism? No. It just means this. The only time that this will end what we're experiencing out in this culture and this world that we have today is when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. And until that time, we are going to fight racism in our lives every single day for the, the rest of the days that we live. Until we are with him in glory. I am not saying to reduce reconciliation efforts I'm only saying stop looking to a person, a government, or a system to do what only God can do in his return to the earth to set up his kingdom. And I'm only saying that the strongest voice that we as Christians should be portraying in the culture and the world around us is the voice for Jesus. Where we're all guilty of being a racist because we're all guilty of being sinners. It happens all the time, and it's only going to be completely reconciled when Jesus returns. Number four, and this is very controversial, 
Memory is a powerful weapon. Memory is a very powerful weapon, especially when it is used in the right way. And this is, again, this is probably where Miroslav Volf has met the most resistance in his, uh, his fight against it, racial injustice, uh, the, the social classism that he's experienced in his own day. I just can't find anything better uh, as it relates to scripture than what he's saying here. Wolf would say that memories concerned merely with the truth of what happened and oriented exclusively toward justice all often become untruthful and unjust memories. Memories concerned merely with the truth of what happened and oriented exclusively toward justice often become untruthful and unjust memories. The shield of memory then morphs into a sword. You understand what he's saying? Uh, some of us want to, want to go back and, and remember injustices from the past. And the shield that God has given us, our memory of, of Genesis chapter one and two, will become an offensive sword in this, this battle of, of anti-racism and what we're experiencing. And so Colossians, Colossians three says something interesting. It says this. Forgive one another as you have been forgiven in Christ, right? How have you been forgiven in Christ? As Christians, we've been forgiven completely, totally, without exception. There is no fine print to God's forgiveness. There's no exceptions. There's nothing, there's no sin that he hasn't forgiven us from. He has forgiven us all sin, past, present, and future. And as believers, here's what we're called to do. Forgive one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. All sin, past, present, and future. And so Wolf's solution, is says, he says, remember rightly. There is a wrong way to remember, and there is a right way to remember. And the right way to remember is to forgive and forget what's happened in the past and no longer remember it. That is the only way hearts will ever come back to Christ through the power of the gospel and forgiveness. That's what, that's what he came up with. And I think he's right. And I think we have a responsibility as Christians as we battle injustices. Not to bring things back up. Not to remember for the sake of uh, retribution. Getting even. Making things equal. We remember rightly by forgetting the things in the past. Isn't that what Nelson Mandela did? Isn't that the situation in South Africa and how they were able to overcome the situation that they had there? That's what we have through Christ, and I think that's what I'm, I want to call us to today. The gospel has the power to do something different than anything in this world, anything in this government, anything in our systems that can ever offer to us. And here's what it says. Stop thinking about black and white. Stop thinking about lower social class, higher social class. Stop thinking about male and female and start thinking about the family of God in whom we are reconciled and all that stuff, all of that stuff goes away 
in the perfect family of God. We are a family because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died on a cross to make us one in him, not to hang on to all of these things from our sinful past. We are in Christ. And that means we are part of a different bloodline than our physical bloodline. We are from a redeemed bloodline where there is no difference between black and white, slave and free, male and female. There's only one in Christ all because of the gospel. This is the solution that we bring to this world. This is the solution that we look forward to being completely fulfilled when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom forever. That's when the perfect family of God will be realized. That's when we'll experience it first to its fullest extent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, just thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for the blessings of the cross. We thank you for what you have done for us to put us into your family. Lord, I pray that we would be a, a people of God that stop with the distinctions and start with the unity. I pray that the, the most important, the deepest and the richest bloodline that we will ever be concerned about is the bloodline that was shed on Calvary's cross, the bloodline of Jesus that unites us in a real, eternal, spiritual family. I pray for our city. I pray that we would learn to remember rightly. I pray that we would be a city of, of forgiveness and reconciliation. And Lord, we know that only your Holy Spirit can do that work in the hearts of individuals. Father, if there's anything that is said today out of my mouth that is not accurate or is not true to the scriptures or true to the sinful estate in which we exist apart from you, Lord, I pray that you would identify those things and you would deal with them. Help us all to be um, encouraged and brought closer and closer to this mystery of the faith and what it means to be in Christ. We pray all of this, Father, to you through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.